morning. Uh, today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. It can be found on page 6 of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel, said to, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Thank you, brother. Today we're starting a new teaching series on the life of David, as we find it in the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel, and this will carry us from now through till the Easter season. The life of David. You may not know, but David was among, no, the greatest king of Israel. Uh, he was a great man. He was also a deeply flawed man. Uh, the Bible tells us that he is one that serves as a foreshadowing of Jesus himself, who is called Christ our King. Uh, there's a lot that we can find in the life of David. Uh, as one author, Eugene Peterson, puts it, we find in David's story a very earthy spirituality. He's a very real person, just like you and me. And he shows how God shows up even in the earthiest of circumstances. Indeed, it's right there in the earth, in the mud of the world, that God gives us Jesus, the greater David, 
And this is how we see ourselves, indeed how we see God himself in the life of David. Let's take a look together. But first, let's pray and let's do this. Jesus, we ask that you would come and that you would bless this time. God, we need you. We need you to open up our hearts. We need you to remove resistances. We need your Holy Spirit to come and make your word powerful. Help your servant. I know I'm weak, limited, uh, but I want to be used. So please use me during this time and speak to all of us, even me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, they should just outlaw it. They should abolish it. It's cruel and unusual punishment, in my opinion, this playground tradition of picking one player at a time. This playground tradition that leaves one unfortunate kid as the one to be picked last. Maybe you remember how this goes. There's a crowd of kids interested in playing football or kickball lined up now against a fence. Two team captains briefly size up the choices. Who knows how they got to be appointed captains in the first place? Then they'd start picking the members of their team one by one, alternating turns between one captain and the other, as they aim to build the very best team by picking the best players first. While this unaccountable experiment in schoolyard social Darwinism was taking place, you know, if you're one of the kids lined up to be picked, you want to be noticed, of course, but you want to be noticed without it looking like you want to be noticed or you're scared of being unnoticed. But either way, you're intensely self-conscious and your anxiety grows as other kids one by one are affirmed, I mean, just picked onto the kickball team, right? And this line of leftovers is slowly shrinking around you. Do you remember the feeling as you face the ultimate dread of being picked last? Because to be picked last means you're least, doesn't it? Doesn't it? No one wants to be that person, no one. And like most things in life, we pretty much live the rest of our lives still on that fourth grade playground. Only we now call the playground different names like work or church. Or what's the name of that place where you've been trying so hard not to get picked last? Because to be picked last means you're least, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Well, the boys were lined up by age. Oldest to the youngest and probably also by height sort of like an ancient Israelite version of the family Von Trapp, only they were the goat herds. Jesse was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz from the Bible, which meant that God's promise to redeem the world was already secretly working through the family. But today, Jesse was a proud father, presenting his sons to Samuel, the great prophet and priest of Israel. 
so with a horn of oil in his hand, Samuel had come to the little town of Bethlehem to anoint a new king. Israel, their first king, was Saul, whose name is mentioned here in verse 1. Saul was tall, and he was handsome. He looked strong, even imposing, maybe, you know, kind of like how you'd expect a king to look. He was an impressive man, at least on the outside, at least as far as human eyes could see. But on the inside, truth be told, he was empty, bankrupt, cowardly, people-pleasing, easily seduced by the temptations of power. Saul failed to trust God as Israel's king. And so tragically, God rejected him as king. Saul didn't get deposed immediately, but God told him that there would be no dynasty after him. And for the remainder of his years as king, God would no longer be with Saul or bless his leadership. So God sent Samuel, telling him here in verse 1, I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king, to be the replacement king. Samuel was immediately impressed. First in line was Eliab. Jesse's oldest son. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord, Samuel thought to himself. Eliab, after all, was tall and handsome. I mean, really, tall and handsome, how could that not be the Lord's criteria, right? But verse 7 tells us, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Oops. Samuel moves on to the next oldest, the, the next most impressive boy, son, Abinadab. But again, God said, no. And so, well, maybe the third time's the charm. Shema, nope, not God's choice either. One by one by one, each of Jesse's seven sons was proudly presented by their father. One by one each impressive son was dismissed. Nope, no, sorry, next. And one by one, the, the tension mounted as the line got shorter and shorter and the prophet slowly ran out of options until finally he was zero for seven. Are these all the sons you have? Samuel asked the now probably embarrassed dad. There still is the youngest, Jesse answers in verse 11. He's tending the sheep. I mean, there's still, you know, baby brother. You know, the, the runt of the fa there's still the runt of the family over there. But, you know, he's, he's out back taking out the trash. You know, our daughter, Noelle, is the youngest of three. She's not even five months into her story. But it's already clear that she's going to grow up the baby of the family. I mean, can you imagine being the youngest of seven? And maybe some of you know how it feels. Maybe you'd get used to being ignored. Maybe you'd get used to being left behind every time, it seemed, while the others went to important places and while they did important stuff while you were left behind. 
I mean, don't miss it, right? This youngest son of Jesse wasn't just picked last. He wasn't even in line. Baby brother was so far off the grid, he wasn't even invited to the party. And it's probably not by accident that this nobody brother enters the scene without even a name. Did you notice? When he finally arrives, to everyone's surprise, to our surprise, the Lord says to Samuel in verse 12, rise and anoint him. Rise and anoint him. This is the one. I mean, what a story. What a story. But what does it teach us here? What are some of the lessons? I think its main message is found in the middle of the story, in that turning point in verse 7, in the middle of the selection process when Samuel whiffs on his first choice, and God tells him this. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, God told Samuel. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is a profound statement. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What does this tell us? Well, first of all, it teaches us how God sees those around us. It teaches us a little bit about how God sees people around us. People whom we fail to see. I mean, can we just admit how much we overvalue people's physical appearance? How much we use these visual markers of beauty or power or wealth or stability or personality to inform us that this person is somehow valuable or even more valuable than others. How much we're just locked into outward appearance, how instinctively we judge people by their appearance. We don't like to believe that we're really like that, but I tried it this past week, sort of sensitizing myself to try to notice how often I do that judging a book by its cover, as the saying goes. Don't you? I do. Maybe it's the way that you sort of walk into a room and size up the competition. Maybe it's a workplace gathering, and you're trying to sniff out who's worth talking to and who's not, assigning value based upon outward appearance. Maybe it's the way you walk into a room looking for a romantic interest. And simply by the way that they look, his eyebrows are a little bit funny. She doesn't got my preferred body type. On that basis alone, you walk the other way. The way in which we uh, assign value to people, sort of respecting them more or paying more tribute to them or giving them more attention and conversation simply because of the way they're dressed. 
It literally, this passage where it says people look at the outward appearance, the original ancient language says people look with the eye. But God looks at the heart. His eyes see something deeper within. I mean, it really is worth asking what sort of features define a person to you. What are you looking at that to you sort of shapes, impacts the way you relate to them most? What's the most important aspect of their personhood to you? The Lord looks at the heart. One commentator, Joyce Baldwin, says this, The Lord has a way of choosing the person people think the least likely. But in the meanwhile, we totally miss the dignity, the glory of people all around us. Because we're locked into this way of evaluating others, we dismiss those who are of a lower income status than us. As the book of James chapter 2 warns us, the way in which people in the church can so easily show favoritism to the more wealthy and the more powerful, dishonoring the poor and the struggling. Or maybe it's the reverse for you, the way in which you sort of assign scorn and contempt to those that look a little bit more wealthy. You size them up based upon how they're dressed and you say they must not be a good person. They must not care about me. The way in which we place value or take value from the disabled, from those that we deem unattractive, or the ways that their personalities don't seem to mesh with ours. You got to understand this is not just a lesson on superficiality. It's also a lesson fundamentally about faith resisting the culture's standards for assigning value on people. Will you say no today? Eugene Peterson, in his great book on the life of David, Leap Over a Wall, says this, I think, helpfully. The choice of David, the runt and the shepherd, to be anointed, to be a sign and representative of God's working presence in human life and history is surely intended to convey a sense of inclusion to all ordinary men and women, the plain folk, the undistinguished in the eyes of their neighbors, those lacking social status and peer recognition. Do you see that lesson? Are you feeling it? Will you ponder it? Listen, God in Christ sets his love and favor upon the ones the world picks last. This is the story of David. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. First, this teaches us how God sees those around us. But secondly, it also teaches us how God sees you. We really need to be honest about how much you and I, we live for the eyes of other people. Isn't that so often the reason why we talk so much or, or maybe decide fearfully not to talk at all? Uh, why you're working so hard in that one friendship or maybe in that new role in the workplace. Uh, the things that we do, the energy we put in 
to gain the approval of other people living before their eyes rather than the eyes of God. 1 Samuel 13, 14 describes David as a man after God's own heart. People pay attention to outward appearance. God looks at the heart. This is an invitation for you, for me, to pay attention to the inner life. How do you see yourself? Not just how do you evaluate others outside of you, around you. How do you evaluate the reflection in the mirror? You see, this teaches us, first of all, the importance of character. Not just the things that we do and accomplish. That's not what defines you in the eyes of God. Not just your competence either, your gifts and abilities. That's not what defines you in the eyes of God. But rather, it's your identity, your relationship with God, your being found in Christ, which then, of course, changes you from the inside out and gives you character from within. As 1 Peter 3 says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, what the Bible here describes as the hidden person of the heart. Here's what's really funny about this passage. I don't know if you noticed it. The Bible said God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God is looking in the heart, and on that basis, God chose David. And yet when David is introduced, he's presented as what? Hot, handsome, literally it says he had beautiful eyes, fair skin. What is going on? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Well, first of all, I think it's important to say that God is talking about priorities. He's talking about what define you, defines you, which is the stuff within but he's not saying that the things that he made with his very own hands, your created outward appearance, doesn't matter to him at all. Take care of that as well. But more importantly, I think this passage is pointing out the beauty of David and then telling us that God is looking at his heart first and foremost to remind us that there is a beauty and then there is a beauty. There is a handsomeness and then there is a handsomeness on the inside that God is paying attention to. A love for God, a love for one another, the character of our heart, who we are behind closed doors, our desires and our dreams that we carry around with us, not just the things that are visible to the naked eye. God is looking for humility, a lowliness of heart. He's looking for faith. This is his priority. Don't you see how this is where we begin to see seeds of the gospel being planted in our vision, even at the very beginning of the story of the life of David? God is not looking for people to be chosen or to be saved by their power or their might or their outward impressiveness because of all the things that they've done, but rather he's looking at the deep, quiet, secret places of a humble faith that cries out and says, I could never qualify myself in the eyes of God. I could never impress God that he might accept me and forgive my sins. 
I could never present my moral record of rights and wrongs and expect on the basis of that that God with his eyes would scan over my life and say, oh, yeah, you know, pretty good. Come on in. But rather with a humble heart, knowing that you with all your selfishness and me with all my lack of integrity and superficiality, Deserve the judgment of God, and yet God, by his grace, this is a story of grace, not based upon all this, but a humble posture of humility, dying to yourself and saying, all I need for life is Jesus, is what he's looking for within. The grace of Jesus changing our hearts, the grace of Jesus, changing even the way that we see ourselves, because if God is not primarily concerned with outward appearances, then neither are we. And if neither are we, then even when we're lowly, even when we know to the world we feel like a nobody, we know that God still loves me so, that God in Christ indeed has chosen me so. Again, Eugene Peterson so helpfully says this, It's the intent and skill of this scriptural storyteller to turn everyone who reads or hears the story into realizing something essentially Davidic about himself or herself. That in my insignificant, sheep-keeping obscurity, I am chosen. This is good news. Do you feel invisible in the eyes of the world, friends? You are not invisible before the eyes of God. I am loved. I am named. The unnamed nobody by the very last line of the story is finally named. The nobody is now a somebody, not because of what he's already accomplished, but simply because he's noticed by a gracious God. God's eyes give you significance. God's eyes give you an identity. David's name, not his role or position, is the final word in this first story of his life. Naming is honoring. Naming is choosing the unnoticed and uninvited shepherd, now anointed by the prophet and by the spirit to be king. He's now named, and so are you. Beloved, God is not looking at your exterior. You feel invisible, you you feel like a nobody, you feel rejected, you feel ugly, you feel like nothingness. God sees you. Here's a word of grace for you today. God sees you. And as we see and sense his eyes upon us, it begins to transform our own eyes. Not only the way we see one another, and not only the way that we see ourselves, but also in the way in which we see Jesus. You see, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, that principle teaches us that that's how God sees Jesus as well. And you say, what do you mean? Uh, Well, first of all, do you understand that this passage actually ultimately is about him? 
you know, a thousand years before Jesus was born, Samuel had a lineup of young men in front of him and was trying to figure out the Lord's anointed in and amongst them. Samuel was called to a little town in Bethlehem to look for his king. And it's not an accident that once again, a thousand years later, there were many others that were also going to the little town of Bethlehem looking for the one called the son of David, the promised king who would come from David's family, who would take his name and more than that, take his character. In other words, he would be unlikely. He would be unnoticed. He would be invisible. He would be forgotten. He would be the runt as far as the eyes of the world were concerned, which of course is exactly what the prophet Isaiah picks up when in Isaiah 52, we're told that this promised Messiah, this coming rescuer of the world of you and me, would be one whose appearance, appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness that we completely missed him. And in Isaiah 53, that he was one who had no beauty and no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance, again, that very same word we find twice in this passage. Nothing in Jesus' appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him on the cross, and by his wounds we are healed. This is the story of Jesus, you know. And if you can just come to understand the unlikeliness of the gospel, Jesus coming not in power but in weakness on the cross. Jesus saving not by the outward things that you do, but the inward reality of a changed heart who humbles themselves and says, God, you got to save me, and Jesus is my salvation. This is a story of learning to see Jesus, and when you come to understand that that's who he is, and that's how he loved you so, and as that love transforms your heart, how will it not also start to shape everything about your outlook in life? How does it not start to give new eyes to you? How does it not start to turn upside down the way you evaluate people? The priorities with which you measure them. So that you notice the invisible and the marginalized and the forgotten and the unsightly. And you notice even those things in your own reflection in the mirror. And you know that those things are not disqualifying, but rather qualifying features for those who are chosen in love by Christ. Jesus loves you so, don't you see? It's simply not true, you know, that to be picked last means you're least because Jesus was picked last of all. So that we, though we're least, 
might become best in his eyes, his most treasured possession, the objects of his affection and his saving love. Do you know this greater David in that way? Do you want him to change your eyes today? Let's pray. So we ask that you would come and send your spirit. We pray that you will pour out the spirit of your grace, your good news, upon our eyes and the eyes of our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.